Hello and welcome to another episode from Stories from the CRISPR Drawer. This episode is called Kale and Milkshakes because let's get the kale out of the way right now. I don't want to have it show up sometime later in the future. And milkshakes are always nice. This is going to be a short one. Let's just run down what I've kind of got written down for today. So we've got North Korea and the U.S. meeting uh, for peace talks and stuff like that's off. If for some people who know, uh, well, it doesn't seem that surprising that it's been a pullout. Like North Korea, to get absolute peace with the United States, they have to open up their borders and allow their people to move freely. There's no way they're going to do that because then they lose control of their country and their population is going to move around. So, you know, South Korea and North Korea can still have their meetings, and hopefully those have some beneficial beneficial outcome. It would be really nice if the alert level for both those countries and the United States and the region drops a little bit, but you also have to deal with China and a few of the other regional powers and what they think about that. Israel and the F-35. So Israel is using the F-35 in combat missions, and I think they've done two so far that they've uh, publicly talked about against ISIS and uh, Iranian proxy forces in Syria. um, And I don't know if they flew in Iraq. Considering that Israel was not a tier one partner in that uh in the creation of the f-35 the joint strike fighter project it's interesting that they're the first nation to use them in combat a good for them and b that they're also a they're now a marketing country for the f-35 so if it all works out well it's going to work out pretty well apparently they've been pretty happy with the performance we'll have to see if uh that holds up in the long run or it was just because they're against other targets that weren't too much of it didn't have anti-air capability. Also, in the other news, the uh, joint investigation group for the uh, Malaysian Flight 17 out of, uh, well, the Dutch and uh, Australia group that looked into that has confirmed that it was a Russian missile battery operating in eastern Ukraine that shot them down. At least according to their information, it was a fully Russian military group. It was not a rebel group that was supplied the Buk missile that took down Malaysian Flight 17. It was a Russian-commanded, Russian-operated unit. We'll see if that goes anywhere. That's all we can really say about that. (laughs) Still nothing on uh, Malaysian Flight 317. Though I did read uh, that it looks like it might have been, A, the captain was committing a suicide. He was basically committing suicide, and he was going to take as many people with him. And they were just going based on evidence that they've been able to obtain from his built-in flight simulator at his home and just how radar pickup has him circling over his home hometown. Maybe not circling, but making a turn that he normally wouldn't have made over that and then continuing on. And then went into the Indian Ocean because we know we found parts in the Indian Ocean. We still haven't found the full plane. It's just... You know, that story is sad no matter how you look at it. E3 is about three weeks away. It's, uh, well, the pre-E3 show starts uh, second weekend of June, uh, which, uh, you know, is probably around the 9th. We'll see if we get the pre actually starting on the 9th or 8th or if they uh, do it closer to, like, the... Well, we'll see if they do the same schedule as they did last year, pretty much. It would be interesting. I mean, the only reason to watch is the Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday 
shows. <laughs> if you're an industry outsider, if you're an industry insider, you actually get to go to the place. I think there is public tickets this year. Are there? I have to look that up. But from anything, from listening to, unfortunately, Total Biscuit, who has passed away, and Jesse Cox, Dodger, and those people, uh, those YouTubers that hang in that same circle, there's no real point to actually go to E3. Unless it's like your first time, but because it's just a hectic, hectic trade show, and it really is a trade show. Maybe years ago there used to be more of this glamour to it, but it's there's so many other video game conventions or conventions that have video gaming displays like PAX, and there there's definitely other one other ones like the big gaming convention at uh, in Germany. Uh, there's game shows. There's other things that allow for more public attendance of these and. I think at some other um, public conventions, uh, more like Comic-Con or anime conventions, you're going to see some of these game companies show up too. And then I think there's board game or game-specifically conventions where these guys show up too, but most of them would probably be centered around packs. are better for just the general audience to go and see because it's more designed at that point for the general consumer. E3 is designed to sell to other industry insiders to show them off like, hey, here's our new technology you should use in a video game or this is the game we're making. What are the game, what are you making and maybe we can learn how to run stuff together. I mean, that, that's just my impression of it. I've never been to E3. Be nice to see uh, Ace Combat 7. I think on um, the Namco Bandai or Bandai Namco, I forget how they pronounce it, but it's one of those two uh, websites. They have... Uh, Ace Combat, well, an aerial fighting simulation game listed that will appear at E3, and, well, that sounds like Ace Combat. It would also be nice to see what Nintendo has, what Sony is going to bring up, because apparently the uh, PlayStation 4 is entering its end-of-life stage, which makes sense, considering that the PlayStation 4 is about five years, is approaching four years old, and I got mine r relatively late in it. Is it four years? It's, I think it's older, actually. It took a while for them to get to the PlayStation 4 Pro. Uh, initial launch date of PlayStation 4. And it will be cool to see what those guys have, what Xbox comes out. Um, just because it's nice to see that, like, when they do those big displays. Hopefully Ubisoft doesn't go crazy like they always do. Um, the annoying thing was... Uh, it was two years ago that Ubisoft had their uh, nice little... Oh, yeah, it is almost four years old. Uh... Ubisoft had their nice, uh, almost five years old, actually. It is four years old, because the first one came out November 15th, 2013, and it's 2018. So, yeah, it's almost five years old. So it would start going on to it, considering that the uh, PlayStation 4 Pro has been out for only two years. They are going to want to start moving on. Um, are they going to do backwards compatibility? Probably, just because, you know, people bought stuff late in the game, and to upgrade, that's going to be mad if they lose something. Also, for the guys who bought the original PlayStation, which is now PlayStation 4, which is less power than the PlayStation 4 Pro, and I think even a little less power than just PlayStation 4 Slim. Those guys are going to be annoyed. Also, the same with the uh, guys who bought the original Xbox One compared to the One S and the Xbox One X. Um We'll have to see if the Xbox One X actually has the legs that Microsoft thinks. It would be nice if it did. But we know that the 360 generation, the PlayStation 3, and the Nintendo Wii generation slash Wii U generation 
ran for a ridiculously long time. That was ma- many more years than expected. But th- they worked. Uh, yeah, it'd be nice to see where that... Uh, Ubisoft is already on Facebook showing off like their, what they did last year at E3 and what they might do this year. It'll be E3. And it's like, just, just tell us what time you're going to run. We'll tune in and watch, and it'll be great. We'll see. It's sad that Total Biscuit, um, John Bain, did pass away on May 24th from complications of his cancer. It will be. It, it's sad because I would watch his snarkathons, and hopefully somebody, uh, hopefully some of the other guys are able to take that up. We'll see if Jesse Cox's live stream is good, or if Dodger and her group's live stream is worth watching on that. Uh, we'll have to know. And I've been playing around with the LiveTrack 12, uh, LiveTrack L12 by Zoom, which I recorded my last podcast episode on, and I'm recording this one on, I'm going to record future episodes on. It's a pretty good soundboard, at least in my experience. Uh, it's got a specific channel strip just for EQing. It's got five monitors out for headphones, so you can have five people talking and have their own monitor channels at their own volume. You can also have a master. You can record individual channels. Uh, the little strange thing about the uh, recording system, uh, the only idiosyncrasy I see about that is that the recording is post-compressor. So the compressor can affect your recording. You can have the compressor at zero and it won't do a damn thing. Or you can have the compressor turned on and affect the recording. You can also just use the regular um, gain knobs uh, right after the uh, preamp. But uh, yeah, you can do that if you're recording individual channels. If you want to record a master, you set up your master and you can record that directly. Um, So you can record all of the 12 channels that we have on this that come with this individually, plus the master, uh, master fader as a live mix, um, which is pretty nice. Um, I would like, and hopefully they'll come out with a, uh, on their little recording, uh, little recording section display, would nice to have a waveform or something to show the levels that are going on instead of just the, uh, half lit up LEDs that they use. Um, I mean, the LEDs work. I'm noticing them more often. It would just be nice to see how much in a waveform pattern. So right now, how I'm monitoring that is I actually am recording on a uh, small little tablet on Audacity just to see the waveform show up as well as how... And I'm recording on the unit, but I'm actually side recording on Audacity just to show the waveform. And it's doing a good display of showing what I'm actually doing here. And I'm... I like it. I think the LiveTrack 12 is actually, for what it was worth, for 800 bucks, is a good little piece of kit. The fact that you can do a master session, you can do a show, you can record, you can do a studio, you can do a live. Um, seems to do this stuff pretty damn well. And you can also program multiple scenes in on it. So you know if you want to go, if you're going to be doing a certain thing every week and you have a basic um, EQ or something you're going to run with, or probably not an EQ, but you know you want certain effects, you know you want your channels certain ways, you want the monitor volumes based on a certain thing from your last experience, you can set up scenes to do it that way, which is nice. Uh, records to an SD card. Uh, so, you know, you got SD, you got HSD high capacity, and 
HDX, I mean HX, so you can record a lot of data on this thing. Yeah, and it it's running pretty well, and the the 48 volt uh, phantom power doesn't seem to affect non phantom power channels. So when you click it on, because I have my um, Audio Technica uh, 1020 requires phantom power, but my um, my uh, uh, EVRE20 does not require phantom power. And yet they're on the same bank, so bank one through four has phantom power. Um, but the device obviously does not send phantom power to places that don't need it, which is nice on it. Maybe it does, but maybe the compressor or the amp or the recording system is able to filter that out. It runs pretty well. Uh, quick little mention of the royal wedding because it happened. That was over a week ago. Yeah, it was. It was last Saturday. Prince Harry is married. Okay. And there's been big talk about racial stuff in the UK about it, but I'll leave the UK to the UK. There's a few weird things going on in the UK. Uh, I've also been playing Hyrule Warriors, uh, the definitive edition of the Nintendo Switch. I have the regular edition on the uh, Nintendo Wii U. And it's fun how they've rebalanced everything and also how you can have multiple characters Multiple, multiple controllable characters on the field at the same time. So in campaign, you can have up to three uh, trading off on matches in adventure mode. It depends on the map, but you can have multiple like that. It makes it more fun, less stale. Because if you're running, like, you know, for, for a lot of the big maps in, in uh, the adventure mode, to get A, you need to do over a 1,200... KOs in a match, probably closer to 1,500, and you have to do it in less than 15 minutes and take minimal damage. And if you're able to trade off your characters, because if one guy has cleared one section of the map and then he's a long way away from another outpost or another enemy uh, keep, it can take a while to get over there. If you can trade to another one of your characters who's closer to that keep and continue the you know, battle rate going, it feels like you're less out of the fight. So good on, uh, good on uh, Nintendo and Tecmo Komi for uh, getting that, running that so nicely. Uh, also how they put the characters in the DLC series uh, from the Wii U and the Nintendo Switch, uh, I'm not Nintendo Switch, or the Nintendo 3DS version, how to find those characters instead of buying them on DLC. They're just hidden in adventure mode or they're unlocked through the campaign. It's really nice, and how all the, those campaigns are actually kept together in the game. And having, like, eight adventure maps, which is a lot of adventure maps to go through. I only ever completed one in my Nintendo uh, Wii U version. I've started working on all of them, but it's nice how they've really done a lot. And this is a... <laughs> yeah, this is going to be a short episode, because I'm almost done. There's not too much else to talk about there's always political stuff. I could talk about gun control and gun rights, but I just don't feel like it. Um, forgotten weapons and in range are definitely uh, dealing with stuff. Oh, yeah, YouTube's uh, bulk on the range two days that they took him down, which is probably the least offensive gun channel on YouTube, like probably the most tame of all of them. And they take that down, and when they hear all back from the community, like, no, no, don't take this down, they put him back on, but... Is Bloke on the range really going to stay on the range for a long period of time? Or 
is this like a temporary concession to make us get complacent again? I think Carl from InRange has been very smart in saying that you need to diversify your platform if you're using YouTube as your primary method of distribution and it's content that YouTube has become advertiser hostile towards. So you're not going to get the advertiser dollars that somebody else get, will. And that's concerning, specifically after the adpocalypse, which is still kind of going on, and how Patreon has taken off to replace a lot of that. But you're also then dealing with the fact that the community guidelines are vague in certain instances and allow for people who don't want your channel up can harass the YouTube system and use it in their benefit to take you down. I think the AK Operators Union was dealing with that, where there, there was a guy who was, the second a video goes up, was flagging it. Like, there's no way he was watching it, but he was flagging everything on their channel, and they did have some stuff taken down. That was earlier in May. I don't know if that was ever resolved. But it's, just, it's, it's concerning in this generation that we are dealing with. Uh, we're dealing with this. We're dealing with this ridiculous... Um, it's just amazing that we have this amazing tool, the internet, and the whole idea of the internet was to make distribution of information less centralized, thus harder to control, and yet Facebook, YouTube, and Google probably control a ridiculous amount, well, they do control a ridiculous amount of the internet. Google owns on the first and third most powerful search engines in the world, Google their own search engine and YouTube. And then Facebook owns the second most powerful search engine on the planet, which is their own proprietary search engine for their own website. And yet they are gatekeepers to the information. They become pseudo, like, well, they become extraterritorial entities almost. They are nations that aren't nations, but they have ridiculous amount of power to them. And we, the user, has get, have given that power to them under the guise that they were going to be good to us. And for a good period of time, they have been. But now we're starting to see they are too used to it having the power. And maybe we should be concerned about that and start looking for other distribution platforms. I know that when I start, if we start making video podcasts as well on Stories on the Kisper Drawer, um, hopefully next week we'll have another episode. Uh, hopefully I'll have a guest on soon. Uh, we are going to have a game tonight, so I'm thinking of recording that just for fun. We'll see how that goes. Uh, have to edit that together. But um, going forward from that, going forward from that, I would probably start posting on non-YouTube sources. Like maybe I'd post on YouTube for a little tiny bit, but then get off it, or have it as just a means. Also, I'm not saying I want to use Facebook's uh, video system as well, because that is again giving to the super overlords of the internet, these powerful super entities. So one of the websites I like uh, is BitChute, which I would definitely go on to, just because BitChute's main deal is non-censored, non-controlled uh, content, basically. You can't post anything like, you know, violence and stuff like that. Like you know, Stuff that would break laws you can't post on there. But if it's not a... You know, if you're saying you got a video and advertisers aren't going to support it on YouTube, you put it on BitChute. Maybe YouTube won't even allow it on because of community guidelines. You put it on BitChute. There, it's distributed. And BitChute's distribution platform is designed to not centralize it, but actually to decentralize. So that's good. It gives power back to the people. Hopefully BitChute 
is able to get their hands on a couple of, uh, you know, some money from that or at least make financial cash from this project. It'd be sad if they can't. We'll see. Um, and we'll see if other platforms, like I saw yesterday or the day before it, that Pornhub is creating a free and very powerful VPN for anyone to use, specifically to get around all these issues of both being tracked or your ISP controlling what you're going to see. And that's amazing. And I think we're going to see more stuff like that, more free and very powerful uh, VPNs by platforms that want the distribute, want this uh, data distributed and not centralized and don't want governments or major players in the internet, major companies that control a considerable portion of the internet directing how your information is used and sold. It's also interesting. Um, well, the EU g gave their new uh, guidelines for information, and it looks like a lot of. Um, well, how would I say it? So, platforms that you that are distributing stuff to the UK and Europe, video game uh, and uh, media websites like YouTube and stuff like that, have just updated their privacy policy. So, Steam has done it. Um, a couple of other websites I'm part of have done it. I think Facebook had to do it. Windows definitely had to do it. But we're also seeing uh, some of the newspapers and digital content providers from the uh, from the U.S. And I don't know if Canada's in on that yet. Uh, I doubt we have the presence big enough to be concerning or that our companies that provide um, access over there have probably had similar guidelines for privacy and in the past and or maybe they've done the same thing in the u.s has done which um, a lot of the u.s providers like new york times and the la times have just said that they're not going to provide content in europe for anybody because they don't want to deal with the uh, privacy clauses that the uh, new eu regulation has now, now i'm of two minds of this i haven't read this regulation so i'm going pretty much blind talking about this but I don't like government regulations on most things. I do like the idea of defensive privacy. But I don't like it being the government being the one forcing it. Because the government then claims that it's all about privacy. And they're trying to defend you from these platforms. But you notice how they always write themselves out of it? Like, they don't have to do the same thing. I don't know about the EU one. But you just notice that surveillance systems and uh, consumer data and privacy data... Most governments say a business can't do it, but they just conveniently leave themselves off of the table of talking about it. Which, yeah, that's how they work. That's how their security apparatuses work. Uh, whether they work as well as people say they do, that's up for debate. It's also how they're able to know what their citizenry is thinking, and if you believe in the idea of the deep state, and specifically the professional uh, government worker, not the politician, but the bureaucrat who has worked for um, a government office and will always work for a government office. They're around for a long time. And if they have information to be able to predict the pathways that their government is going in, or that the people who are voting for their government's going in are able to, I don't know if influence it, but at least be acknowledged that there are changes coming and are able to adapt or maybe counter them in a nonviolent means or wouldn't you want to do that? If that's your job, if you're going to work for, let's say, the IRS or the Canadian Revenue Agency and you don't like the libertarian taxation as theft movement and you see it's growing, 
well, aren't you going to, maybe not you yourself, but isn't that the culture of that enterprise going to try to defend its existence? It's very hard in any sort of business to take out a department, take out a section of the business. Now, in private companies, it's way easier to do it because it's like, you're not making me money. I don't want you here. I could use this money on R&D or other projects, slash, gone. If they're unionized, it's a little harder than that. But there's still ways to get around that. In government, it's very hard to eliminate something. If guys have had budgets for years, they're going to fight tooth and nail to make sure that budget never shrinks. Any bit. Yet alone be wiped out entirely. If there's a de- two departments, they're doing the exact same thing. Slightly differently. But they get the same results. It's going to be impossible to wipe one of those out. Just because of how hard those groups are going to fight to keep them there. And they're they're going to get their... They're going to get the politicians that represent them in, in their population to say, you can't wipe this out because that's taking away their jobs and stuff like that. It, it, it's hard to do. The libertarian perspective is, unfortunately, a very hard reality to approach because of how much work libertarians have to do to actually get the government we want. How we need a considerable portion of the population voting in our direction. And even then, how we have to clean house. And it's not always compatible. I mean, the end goal of libertarianism is you live the way you want to live as long as it's not infringing on me. And it's kind of live and let live and, you know, just go do what you want. We need government for very few things, mostly national defense and the defense of our rights from entities that are trying to manipulate them. And these are like, you know, a company can't threaten to kill you if you're not going to go work for them. That's sort of what the government's there for. And if you've got a guy on the street who's shooting people because he's a psychopath, well, the government's there to take him down. Could you have private policing? You maybe could, but I'm skeptical of it at a certain degree. I understand private policing for businesses, where businesses uh, have private police forces. I think there, I, th- I remember reading on Reason two years ago that there was a private police force that still exists in San Francisco. All they do is they just cater to businesses and they just provide them with protection and allow the regular San Francisco police department to deal with more, you know, more domestic issues, I would say. So there are ways to get to this level of re- reducing the compliance on government or the, nec- or the uh, not the compliance, compl- um, lo- relying on the government. There's ways to reduce the amount of reliance on the government you can have the issue is is that when you have a existing entitlement structure such as Canada has compared to the US so Canada we have technically socialized healthcare there's no way around it. like it is a government owns the healthcare system and they pay for it and our tax money both provincial taxes and federal taxes through GST which is then distributed to all the provinces based on a formula uh, the equalization payment formula for Canada that helps pay for some of the uh, for healthcare in Canada. So the government owns the healthcare system. The provincial government owns it. The federal government determines the rights that that province is able, the, the rights and protections that the province must provide. So there's stuff like that. But the problem is, is that uh, you eventually start to deal with an issue 
specifically about, uh, well, sort of being slow here. The issue in the long run with that is when people are so used to having a their taxes pay for the healthcare system so they don't get the bill for most of it after the service is done or they don't see it prior to, like in the United States, some places you're going to see your bill prior to actually getting the surgery done. And that's just an estimate. Who knows if that changes based on surgery. But in Canada, you don't have to pay the bill yourself. And let's face it, you, there still is flaws in the system. So you still have to have your own health insurance. Government pays only a little bit for eye care. They pay ridiculously low for dental work, which is interesting because your dental care, like you can get a lot of infections in the mouth um, that dentists can very easily help you fix that can be detrimental to your life and potentially fatal isn't that expensive. But dentistry is a more private section of the healthcare in Canada, which is interesting, socialized healthcare, but our dentists really aren't. You can go into the hospital and get dental work done, but I don't think that's really ideal because those aren't specialists. They might have specialists on staff. I've never done it, not being discouraged to the people who are doing it. The issue is, is once that people are used to having that, it's very hard to take that away and seem compassionate about taking it away from them. And I understand why that's a very hard thing to do. And it's, it's very hard and very, like, it seems very disheartening and very, very cruel. And the defenders of the social, uh, socialized medicine system will say, well, what about this granny who's, you know, she's got her grandkids and she's got a great grandchild now and she's got cancer and you just took away her ability to get cancer treatment. That's what they always grab. They always grab for like the worst case scenario, this eight-year-old or this like, you know, baby who's got something in the family has no ability to pay for healthcare. It's like, yeah, I understand that. That is heartbreaking scenarios. The issue is, is that then you deal with the European, well, specifically the UK, where you've got kids with, you know, life-threatening illnesses and the UK's response is, well, they're going to have to die in our custody. And your parents, even though that you've got countries and other hospitals that will take them, yeah, you can't, you can't take them out because that's detrimental to the kid's life. It's like, you're going to have the kid die in a hospital. Why can't I take it to another hospital, to another country, where they might have a life-saving treatment? They might not, but it's worth the risk. If my kid lives six, you know, maybe a few more months longer, as a parent, wouldn't you want to take that risk? And I'm not a parent. I don't have kids, so... But I can see from the compassion angle of them, they would want that. That's just, you know, it's terrible when you think about it. But I also understand, like, so that's, those are, like, cherry-picked examples of socialized medicine not working the best way it should. And that should never come up. Um, the idea of assisted suicide through medicine should always be through a person who has the ability to even make that decision and understands that decision. And let's face it, based on information we have about the human brain, the human brain isn't fully developed until between 22 and 25 years old. So that means if you give an 18-year-old the right to commit suicide, they don't have a fully rational brain developed. And being somebody who not that long ago was 18 to 25, I can say, oh yeah, I just looked through my old Facebook post and I'm like, yeah, my brain was really, really, really good at being paranoid and grabbing things it shouldn't have and grabbing or completely misinterpreting social signals and stuff like that. I'm not the best today, but I'm way more relaxed about a lot of the stupid stuff that would hitch me up when I was younger. 
so yeah, that's oh jeez, I'm at thirty two minutes now almost. I think that was pretty good. Uh what else should I talk about just quickly closing? Uh got another project on the go soon with my brother. Uh we'll see how that goes. It's an artist interview. My brother will be filming it and we'll be using this uh board soundboard for the live and also to record. It and it will be posted on YouTube eventually. And when it is, I will put the link to it in the description of that episode that happens either around it or after it. Uh, once it's all said and done, that'll be fun. Because uh, I actually do want to watch what the final product is. I helped in the last one, but because it was only my H6 that we really used for recording, it'll be interesting me using this entire board to work on that. Plus, I'm going to start getting into video editing, and I'm going to get a new. I'm starting a new job soon. Which, that's a lot about me, but I can't really talk about my new job until it's fully gone. And frankly, I don't like talking about my work mostly on podcasts. I like talking about my hobbies, which is the podcasting stuff and my playing video games and my experimenting with technology, this limited stuff. I hopefully expand, do more of this soon. And I want to have more people on this. And it's really boring. It's just me monologuing. Because as you can see, the long track ones that I can do, besides some of the ones where I, the two episodes where I was exploring Amazon after I ran out of topics to talk about is when I had legitimate people on, we just talked about stuff. We could go an hour and a half to two hours long form. And I think that's good. That's what you want to have. And considering I do want to add a few more mics to this setup and potentially live stream the U S election, or at least run a podcast from the U S election and make fun of it. And if I do live stream, I do. I already have on my big computer upstairs OBS that I can move downstairs and capture and do some overlays and stuff like that. I'd have to learn how to do that. And then, but you know, there's a few more months for that to happen. That's happening, I think, in well, I don't know, November. So I got time to learn how to do some of that. I may not be the best, but hey, at least we'll have something by then, hopefully. Um, hopefully, I have like two or three other people over making fun of the U.S. election, and. You know, doesn't matter which side wins. We're going to make fun of it. We're going to try to roast it. And probably the next uh, provincial election in Alberta, we want to roast that too, as well as the next federal election in Canada. Oh, yeah, the... Uh, oh, speaking of Canada. So we've talked about the uh, Kinder Morgan pipeline in Canada, and uh, specifically going from Alberta to BC to a port just, uh, just north of Vancouver where they're going to run this um, bitumen... Um, oil product, which is a hard oil sludge. Uh, not really hard, but it's like it's a thick oily sludge that is then used to be... It's great for asphalt, but it, when it's refined, it can turn into practically everything. Sending it out to BC to put on tankers that will then take it around the world to be refined in those countries' things, and we can sell it at market price. Right now, that project's not going through. It looks like Kinder Morgan is... They might pull out of it. I mean, they've done a halt on it, and with the British uh, Columbia government, their provincial government, being practically run by th four NDP seats, I think, or is it three? But to get the uh, Liberals... Uh, no, the NDP to have majority, they have to have three green seats working with them. So there's three green seats are dictating the NDP's policy, and they are anti-oil development, which is just... 
I don't think the Greens understand how to actually reduce greenhouse gases, besides from they believe the 100% like annihilation of using carbon fuel, carbon-based fuels. Mankind has done so much in carbon-based fuels. Like, our technology from the 1900s beyond is basically built on carbon-based fuels. There is no way you can just phase that out overnight. And we do not have the technology to replace it right now. The closest we have is nuclear power. But even then, we still need... We still are going to have to extract oil from the ground to help make steel, to help make metal, to help make rubber, to make uh, insulation for our electrical lines, to make our doors help with glass... There's so much in this world that requires oil. And a lot of it can be recycled, which is good. Not as much if it can be uh, to the extent we'd want, but technology is progressing in a way that we probably can get around that soon. But think about it. Like, just look at stuff that you have in your general day, like your phones. P- the plastic on their shells are probably oil ba- are definitely oil-based petroleums. Uh, power cords, the rubber and the plastic that covers that insulates them are probably oil-based. Your power bar, the shell for your power bar, well, that's not a plastic that's naturally forming in real life, so that's got to be a refined petroleum product. This soundboard I'm using, and the microphone has probably has definitely petroleum products into it, or has been made using petroleum, even if it's just the petroleum powering the plant or creating the heat for the metal to be shaped. This is not something we're going to get rid of overnight. And to have that's a pipe dream. Now, I'm all for reducing the carbon footprint of the world and making the world a better place for the next generations. But jumping and grasping at straws and projects that aren't going to do it, or false projects that aren't going to make us the money or aren't are going to hamper economic development, the only way we can hamper economic development, wipe out uh, oil and have good economic development in the long run, is you're going to have to have a population drop. Now, the good thing is, is that most developed countries in the world are seeing a slowdown in population growth. But developing world is not, and they are the ones that need the oil to get up to our speed for safety and health. Well, anyway, I think that's done for that. Uh, thank you for tuning in for another episode of Stories from the Christmas Drawer. Hopefully there will be another one next week. I'm trying to move it to a weekly podcast. Um, anyway, stay tuned. We'll see. Bye.